From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. The core lean principle of treating people with respect goes far deeper than polite etiquette and other gestures of deference. Enacting a culture that systematically taps the dignity and potential of every employee requires a comprehensive, mindful approach to how companies produce value for customers. In this special episode of WLEI, the podcast of the Lean Enterprise Institute, thought leaders Josh Howell and Sarah Kalick join me, host Tom Ehrenfeld, for a conversation about this deeply personal challenge. Welcome to the WLAI podcast. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld, and today we have Josh Howell of LAI and Sarah Kalick of the Good Jobs Institute. And this seemed like a great time for us to explore the kind of relevancy of some shared ideas and principles uh, that are both in lean and good jobs. It feels like a really key challenge to find ways not just to staff open positions, but to use this as an opportunity to build back better, as it were, by producing better jobs, more inclusive jobs with ownership and purpose. And what I'd say is, Sarah, please kick us off by telling us a little bit about the core ideas in Good Jobs Institute, and we can then, you know, explore how they pertain to what's going on today. Fantastic. Thanks, Tom and Josh. It's so great to be here with you today. Uh, Again, I'm Sarah. I'm executive director of the Good Jobs Institute. We are a nonprofit based in Cambridge, and our mission is to help companies thrive by creating good jobs. I think when people hear good job strategy, they automatically think human resources. And we absolutely look at people investments and pay and scheduling and benefits. But we also look at operations and job design and the work itself, Uh, because we know that a good job has to meet your basic needs. So a good job needs to have good pay, stable schedules, career growth, but it also needs to meet higher needs. So belonging, recognition, um, meaning, growth, and to have all of those things and to be able to shine in front of customers and to be able to do a great job. You know, we, we have an employee uh, pyramid that's based on Maslow's hierarchy of need and has as its sort of higher needs, belonging, recognition, meaning, growth in jobs. And so you really have to have a job that's designed to use people's knowledge and their time and their talent really wisely. And so all of those come together uh, to form the good job strategy. I'm always struck by your comment that this this is job design, this is operations, this is the work itself. It's not a kind of macro set of vague policies that are designed to foster abstract change. And In that aspect, I think it does have a lot of overlap with lean. And, you know, Josh, what what are your thoughts on ways that kind of lean weaves into, integrates, aligns with this work-based, frontline worker-focused approach to purposeful enterprise? Thanks, Tom. Um, Sarah, thrilled to have you here with us. Uh, This is a, a conversation long time coming. 
happy to happy to be joined by you today, and of course joined by you as well, Tom. Um, <clears throat> I think it's exactly what you just pointed out um, that you know the good job strategy has sort of as its two pillars: uh, good pay and good work. Uh, that kind of add up to the good jobs strategy. And you know, I think it was for those reasons that uh, we at LEI were so uh, excited uh, a handful of years ago when we learned about the good job strategy, uh, had the opportunity to read the book uh, written by Sarah's colleague, uh, Professor Zainab Tan, um, because we saw, we saw the relationship, you know, the inclusion uh, of good work, good operations, uh, good work experience for folks on the front line uh, in industries in particular and industry in particular, uh, retail, that, you know, isn't necessarily sort of known for that. Um, there are companies that have, retail companies that have uh, solid reputations as good operators, no doubt. Um, some folks will know that in my background, I had an opportunity to work for one, a Starbucks coffee company. Um, but I think it's you know more rare than common uh, that that the folks who work those frontline jobs uh, in in that industry, uh, retail, but you know in many industries really, uh, that that wouldn't necessarily um, claim that those jobs are are good per se. I mean, uh, they might earn an income, they might enjoy the fellowship uh, with their coworkers, and and they might have great managers. Uh, but often there are there are aspects of, of those jobs that are that are lacking, I guess. So anyway, the the fact that um, Zainab wrote that book, that the Good Jobs Institute was formed, uh, has been something that that me and the team at LEI have been just really excited about uh, over the last handful of years, and and have found every way that we could come up with, uh, I think, to work in partnership. Uh, with with the two institutes, the GJI and the LEI, uh, I think we, we we see ourselves as on a shared mission, uh, and look for opportunities like this, I guess, to come together uh, to promote what each other are working on, and ultimately uh, to have a positive impact uh, for those folks on the front lines who are often, um, you know, not as well sort of taken care of uh, as we would as we would like to see, and and as we've learned uh, is good. Good for business, good practice for business uh, as well. Feels like these ways of thinking are more important and necessary than ever. Um, that just coming out of the pandemic and a very kind of staggering economy, uh, there does seem to be an opportunity to replenish the the kind of job market. Um, but in everything from kind of Amazon's growth, for example, and the massive number of jobs they're creating, uh, there's increasing pressure being put on companies to pay a minimum wage. And I don't know how much explicit pressure, but to kind of create meaningful jobs where people have stake in the outcome. Um, so where, I guess, do you guys see that happening? What, what are the places where these themes are being brought to the surface um, that really should be applying some of the stuff that you're both working on? Well, I have to say I'm really thrilled that some parts of the future of work conversation have moved on from, you know, robots are going to take your job and we're not going to have enough jobs to 
we need jobs that are quality jobs. So MIT has a future of work commission. They've come out with a report and that's their emphasis. They know that you know with all technology, there's creative destruction, but there's also great creation of new jobs and new opportunities. It's not about robots taking your jobs. Um, we talk a lot about the vicious cycle. So a lot of companies come to us and they are having big operational problems. So in retail, it's stockouts, inventory challenges, data problems, dirty stores, bad customer service. Restaurants, it's gonna be you know, food quality issues. Um, again, customer service challenges. Manufacturing, it's gonna be quality, on time, um, deliveries, all of that kind of thing. And when you've got operational problems, you are likely not connecting with your customers and they're not buying what you're selling. And so you have lower profits and lower, um, you have lower profits and lower sales. And so you gotta cut the budget somewhere. And many companies choose to cut labor. It's big, it's juicy, it's easy to cut. It's immediately felt on the bottom line. Um, and the impact of cutting that labor is super diffuse and you can't count it up. And it just becomes this sort of really challenging status quo. So you cut labor and then you have higher turnover and fewer team members and they can't drive operational excellence. So you have more operational problems. Anyway, you end up in this really vicious cycle that it's hard to get out of. Um, and your workers are in this very similar vicious cycle themselves. They're not getting paid enough. They can't make rent. They can't fix their car. They can't get stable childcare. They have tremendous stress. And there's some great studies uh, about truck drivers under financial pressure who have more accidents. Uh, certified nursing um, assistants taking care of elderly people who generally have great empathy, but when they're under financial stress, do not perform as well. So these workers are just under incredible stress. Uh, and so they have a harder time showing up at work physically, uh, showing up um, just emotionally, mentally, and it's hard to hold a job and it's hard to, again, drive any kind of operational excellence. So as we're coming out of this uh, very challenging time uh, for, frankly, the whole world, as we have understood who is essential, I go to my local grocery store and there's been one clerk there um, for the last year who has helped me almost every time. And I'm so thankful that he is there and that he's putting himself at risk every day. Um, we need essential frontline workers. We need retail workers. We need farm workers. We need those meat processing plant workers to show up uh, because they keep all of us fed and, and healthy. And we need to create great jobs for them. And we need to create great jobs for the companies that employ them. Yeah, there are a few things that yeah, you brought up, Sarah, that um, I think are you know really worth underscoring. Um, you mentioned the pressure, the stress that a lot of frontline workers, especially those that you know we've now deemed essential through this this experience over the last year with the pandemic, um, the pressure that they're under, and the sort of the changing environment this emergence of technology and uh, you mentioned the, the robots you know allegedly coming to take our jobs um this is something that in the lean world we've been uh, exploring and learning from Toyota about for many many decades um you know the the concept of jidoka uh, automation with a human touch uh, we define it as but you know, the principle there is that the, the technology, the automation, whatever it may, you know, whatever specifically it may be, uh, is there to serve the worker, um, to work for the human, uh, as opposed to having the, the human work for it. And 
you know, that's a conversation, I guess, that increasingly we, we want to have um, with companies, with leaders that are integrating these technologies into their operations um, to take over the things that, you know, don't necessarily require uh, humans to, to waste their time doing um, and to supplement kind of the natural talents, the natural capabilities that humans can bring to bear, like solving problems, uh, expressing creativity, um, you know, exhibiting empathy for their customers, uh, providing customer service, uh, we would say. I mean, those are the things that, you know, I think not only are, is it only that humans are kind of capable of doing that, but humans do it really well and gain kind of personal fulfillment uh, from doing that kind of work. You know, you solve a problem, uh, you express creativity through some uh, ingenious solution. You make a customer's day by just providing friendly customer service. I mean, those are things that are all rewarding, uh, fulfilling part of, uh, as we would say, uh, a good job. The good news is, however, um, the conversation that's taking place, um, even at this time of the year, about sort of the value of those folks, the importance of those folks, the dignity that they deserve, uh, in their employment, in their work, the fact that we're having that we've been having this conversation now pretty steadily for a year uh, is really encouraging. I think prior to the pandemic, it would be a conversation that might occur. I don't know, only around like the holiday season, <laughs> when all of us are spending more hours than usual uh, shopping for our Thanksgiving dinners or for Christmas gifts or you know whatever, um, and interacting with those folks on the front lines. Um, you know, we've 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 all developed, I think, a bit more awareness, um, empathy for the situation that those folks are in, not just in dealing with the pandemic and and the health risks, um, but also just you know, I guess, with that in mind, um, thinking again about the conditions uh, that that those workers are in, even in normal times, um, and the pay and compensation, and and some of the areas where, you know, there's just lots of room for. For improvement to do better by those by those fellow humans. Um, okay. Anyway, a few things. I, I'm going to challenge you both. I'm going to play cynic, um, and ask you to kind of prove your case that it sounds like a good thing to do. And sure, it is a good thing to do. But um, beyond just making a a very instrumental business case, um, describe you know, tangible ways to enact this model of a, a kind of uh, more dignified work on the front lines. And um, tell us what organizations that do this systemically um, look like. And I'm going to start, Josh, with you. And uh, you have a deep background in the restaurant industry. LAI has been exploring something called Lean and Food. And I might ac actually ask you to share anything you've learned in that field, although that's not an essential requirement. Uh, it's still open-ended. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, thanks. So as you mentioned, um, and as some folks may be aware, um, you know, the environment, the company that I was working for when I was first introduced to Lean was Starbucks Coffee Company. And um, so kind of got started in a food service retail environment, exploring uh, what these ideas meant for that business and how, how, how these ideas could benefit me as a 
frontline supervisor at the time. Uh, and then through my work with LEI over the last several years, I've had the opportunity to work with several other retailers, uh, food service businesses, restaurants, um, to continue to explore uh, how these ideas might apply. You know, there's a few tangible ways that, that have been discovered uh, over the years through those various experiments and experiences. Um, the first, I guess, just to start with uh, the work itself. So, you know, that which uh, the line cook, the barista, the frontline associate is doing um, in service of their customers, uh, preparing the food, stocking the items, um, producing things that, uh, you know, that, that customers are gonna consume. Um, and what we've seen repeatedly really in, I don't know, every job in, in these businesses that I've ever studied um, is, is just kind of how wasteful they are, how many problems, operational problems exist uh, within, the, within the operating system itself that makes it just frankly really frustrating and difficult to, to do good work uh, in these environments. So it's things, Sarah mentioned some of these things earlier, but it's things like, you know, tools being in disrepair, machines not working, breaking down, um, parts, ingredients not being in stock, uh, deliveries to those operations coming in late, coming in incomplete, coming in inaccurate. Um, so there's all these kinds of problems that are beyond the reach of the worker, uh, the individual worker to address. Um, and uh, so th those are those are you know some of the things. Um, there's being even just do, being asked to do work that's not necessary. Being asked that's to, to do work that's not necessary for sure, for sure. Or even at times where it's unnecessary. I mean, it's uh, especially in food service. It's kind of an industry notorious for batch production, and you know, like in a in a restaurant, for example, prepping ingredients uh, prior to like hours, in sometimes in some cases days before guests arrive and, and place their orders. Uh, and oftentimes what that means is those prepped ingredients, you know, like more, more ingredients were prepped than were necessary. So that's just wasteful. Or some of the ingredients get prepped too early and kind of go bad. That results not only in a bad kind of quality experience for the guests, but uh, again, like that individual spent time preparing those ingredients that ended up uh, spoiling. Um, so they're just, I mean, it's, it, it's rampant, the number of things like that. I think beyond the work itself, though, uh, I would call attention to the kind of the, the support systems around those individuals performing their jobs uh, that are often just not in place. What I mean by that is, you know, we learned from Toyota the concept of a team leader there to be responsive to a team member who's experiencing a problem to immediately respond, ideally within the cycle of work, uh, and to continually monitor uh, problems and issues that are kind of trending, that are becoming patterns uh, to get into some root cause problem solving. And that form of kind of frontline support for immediate problem resolution, what Art Smalley calls troubleshooting uh, in his book, Four Types of Problems, getting into root cause problem solving and even Kaizen uh, that kind of support system um, is just largely, almost virtually, entirely missing 
um, from the work experiences that many of these many of these folks have. And so it's kind of no wonder that um, they're experiencing all these problems day in and day out because there's really no management system in place to, to fix these issues, uh, to solve these problems. So it just adds up, you know, it adds up to a pretty overwhelming and frustrating, demoralizing at time experience, uh, just operationally, you know, uh, beyond even the issues of pay and, and, and benefits and those things. It's, sorry it's to jump in, but just one thing, it does strike me that lean uh, represents a very powerful systemic countermeasure to a lot of that, that it really uh, pays attention to and manages these aspects mindfully, uh, diligently on a daily basis. Um, well, I always love to talk about restaurants because I love to eat. And I think restaurants in America have, have had, again, a really tough year. They have pivoted, they've been adaptive, um, and they have really struggled. And so I'm really excited to see how the Good Job Strategy and how Lean can help restaurants build back better. And Josh, I, I love your example, especially um, when you think about work, so much of what is challenging is happening outside of the you know four walls of that restaurant. So when we at the Good Job Strategy are, are working with uh, a restaurant or a retailer, um, we care deeply, deeply about what is happening inside of the business unit. And we spend time with frontline workers. We will interview them, shadow them, um, work the job if we can, really want to understand the systems and what frustrates them and what frustrates customers. But oftentimes, the solution has to start outside. So we start with looking at the company strategy and just understanding do you have a strategic focus? Do you know why your customers come to you? And are you making hard trade-offs? And many restaurants don't do that. So we worked with one that had a massive menu, anywhere from tacos to pasta to fish, 200 plus ingredients that they had to source, some of which were hard to source, many of which were organic, many of which were really hard to prep. Um, anybody love kale out there? you really gotta wash that stuff or it's really gritty, right? And so if you've got a, a problem in your kale supply chain and you can no longer get pre-washed, pre-cut kale, you all, all of a sudden have a, you know, a trained chef doing some really not super fun work and work that's not super productive. So um, again, we start with why do your customers come to you? Do you have a focus? Are you making hard trade-offs? And are you simplifying everywhere you can so no one is doing non-value add work? And there's so much low-hanging fruit here. Um, and the people who know what that that non-value add work are, are the people doing the work. So let me, yeah. let me ask both of you guys, I mean, how do you sell this to uh, company owners and leaders in a way that they don't just immediately filter this down pragmatically, instrumentally to cost saving, you know, cost squeezing. We're going to lean out your operations. How do, how do you present, frame this as a proactive, positive, systematic kind of source of dynamic? Inevitably, growth? I've found that there is frustration on the part of business leaders with um, repeated problems being experienced by their customers, by their guests. So in a restaurant environment, that might be longer than expected, you know, wait times to be seated. Remember the days when we used to be seated in restaurants? It's amazing. It's coming soon. It's coming soon. Um, so things like that, or, uh, you know, incomplete orders being delivered through takeout or delivery, 
um, food quality being inconsistent. Um, so to start, I guess, the conversation with, you know, some of those kind of pain points, some of those frustrations that the business owner, the business leader has uh, that directly impact the satisfaction of their customers, of their guests that lead to, you know, a degradation of sales, stuff like that. Um, so that's typically where I, where I would want to take the conversation prior to getting into, you know, some of the nuts and bolts, some of the X's and O's of the operations or the work, uh, which is where I love to spend time. Uh, Tom, you know me well enough, Sarah, you as well, uh, to know that that's where I want to go. But to your, to your question, Tom, you know, to make this sort of a compelling reason why uh, for a business owner, a business leader, um, I've found that there's a lot of interest in, um, having a methodology within the company, having the capability with, with the people who work within the organization to, to address these, you know, what are in fact systemic, repeated uh, customer and guest problems um, and frustration enough, you know, to be motivated to really try anything, <laughs> um, whether or not uh, at the outset they would buy into lean thinking or buy into something like the good job strategy. I'm not so sure. I think they're just, you know, there's almost a sense of uh, like desperation um, to to try out anything uh, that might start to address some of these uh, longstanding issues in a in a systemic kind of get at the root cause kind of way. I don't know, Sarah. What what's been sort of the tact that you take to get gain interest and uh, and a willingness to experiment with a good job strategy? Yes. So a couple of thoughts here, and one is frankly we don't sell this to anybody. You really have got to come in with a real business problem. You have to want to improve jobs and you have to want to improve your business. Um, this is just, it's just not something we can sell. This is not a silver bullet solution. And there are so many out there right now. And we hear about them all the time and they're a new app or, you know, a, a new way of paying people more frequently, which by the way is great, but it's still, it's, it's not what's going to fundamentally change the competitive nature of your company. So you have got to want this and you've got to have a long-term view. You have to be humble. You have to be compassionate. You have to know that your frontline workers drive your business and they're the ones who see your customers every day because Josh, you're totally right. I mean, companies come to us because their customers are frustrated with them, right? So Quest Diagnostics call centers a few years ago went through a good jobs transformation. They had consolidated about 20 regional call centers into two um, in Tampa and Lenexa, Kansas. And they were just, they were, they were having huge customer service problems. Customers were, you know, threatening to leave. And these customers are hospital systems, right? These are big customers um, because they could not get good service at, at the call center level um, for their doctors, for their patients, for anybody. So for Quest, it was, it was an existential threat, right? Like we have got to shore this up. So when we do talk to companies who are interested, again, we we, we don't sell. We, um, we we really have open and honest conversations with companies about what this looks like and, and what this means and how long it takes. Uh, we certainly make a financial case and there's a huge financial case to be made for this. Um, there's a huge financial case to be made for this. We actually created a good jobs calculator, which can help companies calculate the uplift uh, in revenue and uh, the savings and cost savings of having better jobs. We made one with the National Association of Convenience Stores, which is on their website and uses some of their industry benchmarks that you can sort of benchmark yourself against. It's it's super fun. You can toggle around, play with it. Um, 
you know, when a company is tasked with trying to figure out what the uplift of good jobs is, they're often very conservative. We see companies that improve jobs and they see a decrease in turnover by 30 to 50%. A company might only model out five to 10% because it's really hard to make those kind of bets on people. And I wish it wasn't, but it is. And it's hard when you're the one responsible for trying to figure out, you know, how you're going to save $100 million if you're investing in wages. So we, we the financial case is there, but hard to make. The competitive case, that is really the kicker. So bad customer service, um, losing accounts, um, you know, having a lower score in JD Power or any of the other sort of external validators. These companies have got to be more adaptable. They have got to be more innovative. Um, and I, I do think that they see good jobs as being really important for that. So one more can example. I, oh yeah, please. Can I um, take on, put on your hat for a second, Tom? So Sarah, uh, I hear you. I, 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 it, it resonates with me um, a lot that, you know, um, whether it's a good job strategy or lean thinking or whatever we're calling the thing that we're <laughs> promoting and representing um, that's, you know, aimed at improvement um, to sell it, especially to the business owner, the business leader it is almost to like admit defeat upfront. If, if that's, if that's where you are at the same time, um, you know, with a motivated business owner, with a motivated business leader, uh, sort of deciding on behalf of the company to pursue these these approaches, these methodologies. Inevitably, however, you're going to encounter individuals within the organization, often in you know positions of influence, uh, managers, for example, or long-term employees who just have a lot of clout uh, and the respect of their fellow colleagues, um, who you know aren't whatever, um, as excited about what it is that you're there um, representing or bringing, um, you know, they're, they're offering up like resistance, I guess. So how about for those individuals? What is it that you've done or um, what are you experimenting with to, you know, sort of get them to see the value for their situation with the good job strategy? It's a fantastic question. So as I mentioned, we, you know, we talk about strategic focus and you're gonna to have to make hard trade-offs. And if you're a merchant and the company decides we gotta make some hard trade-offs, we're not gonna sell that thing that you buy anymore. That's your job, right? And so you're not gonna dive into that head first because it's incredibly frightening and, and you feel like you may lose your job. So I think just a lot of the inertia in big companies, communication challenges and gaps, all of all of that make this very challenging. So. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that we do to try to overcome that. First of all, we try to engage people at all levels of the organization from the very beginning. So again, spending time with frontline workers, with store or business unit managers, regional managers, district managers. We do workshops with C-suite, but we include, again, all the way down to store manager level um, because A, their insights are incredibly important and B, this is not executed at any one part of a company in any one department. It is, it is a whole company strategy. Um, and then once we sort of start working with a company and get the flywheel going, they put together their own team um, to execute. So for Mudbay, they put together a group they call the 20. Mudbay is a pet retailer in the Pacific Northwest. And this 20 was made up of, again of you know, C-suite leaders, of regional leaders, and then of, of store employees as well, all bringing their insights into the strategic design of what was going to happen. 
Um, we do mini workshops with different departments. We engage them, we understand their concerns, we bring them back. We try to do as much as we can and communicate as much as we can and encourage the companies to be openly communicating. Uh, something that uh, we've learned from TSSC also is, you know, no layoffs through improvement, which I think is if important. ID TSSSSC, please identify who they are. Toyota. Okay, I, I can never say it. Toyota Production System Service Center. Support center. Support. It, it is a, an institute that trains others in um, the Toyota production system. It's led by Jamie Bonini, a uh, uh, good jobs board member and good friend of LEIs. Sorry. Uh, uh. Yes, great. Too many acronyms. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but no, it's it's that that I think is one of the complications of any big structural change is you have people who don't understand it, don't agree with it, um, and and. The success of this again does depend not just on HRs, not just on operations. It's merchants, it's buyers, it's it's menu creators, it's it's you know a hundred different general managers of a, of different stores. Um, so there's got to be deep engagement. The um, you know to live by that principle that you shared from TSSC, you know that no one will lose their job as a result of improvement or transformation or adoption of a good job strategy or something um, requires us therefore <laughs> to tackle that challenge, you know, um, to identify those individuals who are resistant, um, skeptical, cynical even, um, and, and find ways to, you know, to overcome that cynicism, overcome that skepticism, overcome that hesitancy. Um, it's a challenge that, you know, we encounter all the time. I certainly uh, don't feel in any way like I've solved that problem or, or you know, have the answer to it. But uh, I know it's a question that you and I have talked about before. And if, if I can jump in with, with just uh, uh, a thought and a question. One is that I think the one of the biggest challenges to lean adoption or good jobs adoption is the perils of point optimization, that people tend to want to improve one thing. And if you don't improve the entire system, your waste inevitably migrates elsewhere. It just, it's whack-a-mole. And I think that that relates to, again, this sharing of the ideas. If you focus on one metric as improvable, say, you know, bottom line profit, you de-emphasize what it takes to get there and almost invariably create incentives for people to reach the right numbers the wrong way. And all of this is kind of a lead up to a, a bit of a stretch here, but <laughs> you're trying to do this so that people naturally and organically improve the work where they're working um, in ways that accrue to the company. Yeah. So to add to that, Tom, I love that you said, you know, a goal is to have uh, your teams naturally and organically improve the work. Man, there is really nothing natural or organic about a really good innovation system and a really good way to drive frontline input, right? So just to, to, to give you an example, it's, it's just a lot, it's a lot of work to build that and wow, is it worth it? But um, it, it's damn difficult. So we worked with one retailer 
And we were working on, again, some strategic focus and, and standardization issues with their headquarters teams. We had a model line in a store where we were experimenting with different ways of doing the work. Um, but then they also wanted to engage all of their workers in idea generation. So they set up an email address and said, send us your ideas for improvement. And that was about all there was. There wasn't much of a frame to it. And their team members were super excited. They got a bunch of ideas, none of which they could act on, right? So it was like, we want this shoe in pink, or we wish you had, you know, a, a, a t-shirt, you know, about pineapples. I'm, I'm not really sure, but, you know, they, they were they were giving feedback that meant something to them, but it wasn't what the company needed from them. They wanted to understand, you know, what's wonky about the point of sales system? What is challenging about processing? What is challenging about, you know, changing displays, right? The, the things that those workers are looking at and understanding every day. So they got a bunch of ideas and they, they were really great about responding to them and, and trying to see what could work, but they ended up getting a bunch that were just not functional. On the other hand, Quest, um, as they were setting up their good job system, they started with a couple of model pods. And so this pod was a 15 person team um, of call center reps and they were trained on problem solving and with a lot of lean and, and TPS tools and, and how do you identify challenges in your everyday work. Um, and they came together and they talked about them in huddles every day and they learned to identify problems. And you know, a year into this model pod, they launched a wider um, ideas system with, with frontline ideas cards, but it took a little bit of time because it takes the training, it takes the stability of people, it takes um, really helping people understand how to improve the work uh, to really get to that beautiful, natural and organic um, set of ideas. And they generated you know, 16, 1700 ideas with their frontline ideas cards in like the first eight or nine months. And they saved a bunch of money, I think $1.3 million run rate with all of those ideas that they were able to generate and implement. Um, but it wasn't the first thing they did and it's it's never easy. And that brings me to our deli experience. So we were working with a, um, a grocery store chain in New York and a deli, the deli was a big challenge for them. It was both a customer driver and a differentiator and they had you know just fantastic offering and they had really long lines and it was a source of customer frustration so they really wanted to dig in and figure out how they could improve so we really wanted to engage the deli manager assistant manager and their team in identifying the challenges and in identifying solutions so we started out we spent an afternoon with their team just observing flow um, and you all know how important flow is and we saw where are people moving too much not enough where are the challenges and we'd had a really fun brainstorming session with lots of whiteboards flying and you know post-it notes and and all sorts of you know a lot of enthusiasm and came out with a bunch of great ideas for how to improve the work um over the next four to six weeks the team was really diligent in doing some experiments and reorganizing and moving and thinking and starting huddles and and really trying to get the the work to improve um, at this this point in the deli um and you know uh we lowered the water and we started to see the rocks so there was high turnover there was high absenteeism a lot of call outs there was just a lot of instability in the team we started with ideas and we started with the work and we didn't start with stability we, we hadn't focused enough on the stability of the team and it made it really hard to keep going with that work. They reorganized the back bar so that the cheese was on the left-hand side where the cheese slicer was. Seems super straightforward. It wasn't happening that way. 
they totally redid their saran wrap stations so that again, there was less movement and the food would be more fresh. Um, they did a lot to reduce shrink, um, all generated from frontline uh, worker ideas, but couldn't keep up the momentum when they didn't even have enough people, frankly, to slice the meat that needed to be sliced. I, I, I wanna uh, hear here something that Sarah said just quickly. Um, yeah. When describing the different experiences she had uh, in with one organization that was tapping into the ideas of the frontline folks um, to solve problems that resulted in kind of ran, you know, a, a bunch of random ideas that didn't translate to a, some kind of a business benefit or even a customer benefit, arguably. And she contrasts that with the experience at Quest Diagnostics where um, some teaching and learning happened around problem solving that helped influence the ideas then that came out of those frontline workers to be, to be frankly better, you know, um, to deliver more benefit to the business, to, uh, to deliver more value to the customer. Um, I just can't emphasize the importance of that enough. Um, that's been, that's very consistent with the experience that I've had too, that if you simply go into an environment and start soliciting ideas, um, which, you know, on the surface is a wonderful thing. Yes, let's let's empower people to share their ideas. Let's tap into their creativity. Uh, I have found that, however, if there isn't some preparation with like problem solving and specifically, I know this is something you talk a lot about too, Tom, like problem framing. Yeah. If that's not established and understood and a part of and, and informing the brainstorming and the ideas that frontline workers are generating, um, that it does result in these kind of random ideas uh, that that are often, you know, cause uh, frustration um, with the business leaders because they're just kind of random. They don't, you know, they aren't going to accrue to the bottom line. They aren't going to improve the customer experience. Um, and just like a simple uh, kind of assessment that I've often promoted with folks is to sort of ask yourself, will this idea, if implemented, benefit kind of all stakeholders? Will it benefit the customer? Will it benefit the worker? Will it benefit management? Will it benefit the bottom line? Uh, and in the absence of being able to answer yes to all of those, to sort of check all four of those boxes, uh, it's probably an idea that, that needs reconsideration uh, or could benefit from returning to the beginning of the problem solving process to do really good problem framing up front um, to make sure that whatever effort we're putting in, whatever time we're spending on quote unquote improvement uh, is gonna result in changes made that will benefit, that will benefit everybody. Um, if you can get to that point, if you can get that understanding and that capability in place, really powerful things can happen. In the absence of it, uh, it does unfortunately lead to just kind of a lot of random, I would even go so far as to say like bad ideas and the notion of empowerment, engaging and involving folks in improvement uh, can become frustrating for everybody because, you know, uh, it's just, it's not, it, it isn't delivering the outcomes that are necessary uh, to maintain kind of buy-in and support uh, at all levels from all stakeholders for this kind of an activity. It feels support. like there's a lot of hard work that 
prepares you to make the easy improvements. And there's almost quotes around easy. And um, I don't want to limit this, but I'm going to just try to circle back to I may, maybe one idea. And so it, as I listen to you guys talk, I, I do believe that we all like us improvement nerds, us good jobs nerds, share a, a kind of common basic principle, which is an appreciation of how unbelievably gratifying and delightful it is uh, to get things done better, you know, to, to believe in it. This is not waxing rhapsodic, but it's the dignity of that person doing the work and um, uh, experiencing a better way to do it uh, in a way that's fomented by the environment, in a way that's supported by their team leader and guided by these, what are at times elaborate principles, but you know, essentially flexible principles. Um, and I, I, I to me, that is the compelling existential reason for doing this work. It's tapping into that, you know, joy of improvement of, of what, what our friend Michael Ballet has called Kaizen spirit. I think that finding ways to help companies set that up as a goal and then commit towards achieving it, it, it is vital. So I think probably my favorite work word is dignity. And I think when you ask people to deeply understand and engage with their work and, you know, bring up ideas for improvement, it really just generates such a sense of purpose and belonging and um, a real sense that, you know, they're able to drive and improve the business. And that's just incredibly important. Um, so I agree with you, Tom, that, that I, I do think that's, um, Kind of a shared uh, source of motivation by Sarah and myself, by by our fellow improvement geeks, uh, as you described us. I found I don't know almost across the board that that can that that is a motivating factor for almost for virtually everyone. I think the challenge that we face is not whether or not people are motivated by that, by helping others improve, helping others be successful you know, bringing about positive outcomes for customers. I think it's more about, you know, how do we enlist and engage and guide folks to participate in that, uh, to be improving their work, to be making things easier for themselves and their colleagues, to be making things better for their customers. How do we get folks sort of doing that in a way that's effective and kind of efficient at also delivering improvement for the business itself, which is, you know, sort of like it or not, it's the premise uh, under which, by, by which we're all gathered here together today. You know, I mean, uh, folks are on the clock, they're in the office, they're uh, at the grocery store, they're in the coffee shop to do business. Uh, that's, that's, that's why we're here. Um, without that, you know, uh, the collection of people in that coffee shop wouldn't be there together. So, you know, it's, it's sort of pulling off that trick, 
I think that source of motivation is inherent in virtually all of us. Um, but there are no shortage of barriers, reasons why this, these approaches, these ideas don't gain traction. And I think it's because although that motivation is there, although that desire to do right by one another, to do right by our employees, to do right by our customers is there, uh, it's really challenging to organize everyone in such a way where the actions that they're taking from that motivation are effective ones to deliver meaningful business outcomes. Uh, that's the trick. And unless we, you know, we, we in our daily practices and the projects that we're involved in or whatever, unless we're able to like close that loop entirely, um, I think we're gonna continue to experience frustration, disappointment, and create cynics, create folks that are skeptical about whatever kind of, you know, good idea, lean idea uh, may be out there. Um, we have to find ways to overcome that. And the only way that I know how uh, is to keep kind of challenging ourselves as coaches, as leaders, as managers to, uh, to kind of get all of those aims aligned uh, and to get folks effectively organized in such a way where um, not only are they doing by, right by one another as fellow humans, uh, but they're doing right by the context within which uh, they've, they've come together, uh, which, is, which is the business and, and its goals and its aims and, and uh, you know, the results that, that it requires to remain viable, uh, to stay open. Yep, I, I, I so agree with you. And so a few years ago, I worked a frontline retail job and I, you know, came in with a sort of training class of six people and man, I was not the best. I was not great at the cash register. I was, I, the, my peers had a great skill set, and they had great ideas and several of them brought those ideas to management as did I, we were not listened to. And it just put us in a cycle of doing stupid work, not being productive, failing in front of the customer um, and leaving every day tired and demotivated and discouraged and honestly feeling really pretty bad about yourself. And that's where dignity comes into. I want people every day at the end of the day to feel that they have contributed to a customer's lives, to their company getting better. And right now, a lot of companies aren't set up to give people um, that sense of purpose and meaning, and they should be. Right. So you mentioned, Josh, alignment. One of the biggest challenges we see with all of this is huge disconnects and silos at the headquarters level, which creates just a vast set of um, disconnects at the store level. So, you know, stores getting a hundred emails a day from 12 different departments, sometimes with radically different directions on what to do and priorities and, and that kind of thing is just totally disorganizing. And it means that people can't be their best. They can't do good work because they're being pulled in so many different directions. One retailer we worked with had 170 different tools, again, created by a bunch of different departments over the course of 15 years, none of which were removed, all of which store managers were expected to use, none of which were used consistently. Many store managers created their own set of tools that, you know, that sort of merged a bunch of them. Um, but you've got super smart people at a headquarters level who are, you know, talking and thinking and creating and totally disconnected from the work and just creating things that don't help. Um, so, you know, that's one question that we, we often ask in interviews with leaders. 
what are two or three of your favorite uh, improvement ideas that came from the front lines this year? And if you don't have an answer for that, if you don't have any ideas, you're pretty disconnected. So how, how often does your team spend time with the, with frontline workers in stores, in restaurants? We always ask that too. Um, and how are your incentives aligned? Uh, because again, many different departments, merchandisers will have a top line incentive. And so if they can just sell a little bit more, they're good to go. But the disconnect with the stores, you know, if they're dumping more product and you have to have more labor hours and all of a sudden the store ops budgets are blowing up, but doesn't matter to that silo, right? So just so much siloed work. Tom, you also mentioned managers, frontline managers. You can't do any of this improvement work if your frontline managers are just fighting fires and not developing people. So that's something that we have to really support companies to think through quite a bit. If you've got 120% turnover, which is what we see in a lot of retailers and restaurants, your manager is not spending time recruiting and hiring you know, the, the correct people for your teams. They have no time to train them. Your first day, my first day, I was on the cash register alone. I had no idea what I was doing because there weren't enough people to train and there weren't enough people to do the work, right? You're not training people, you're not developing them. Um, one of our colleagues at MIT Sloan, before he came to business school at Sloan, he uh, ran a grocery store and he was on the register four hours a day because people had called out. He had so many ideas to build the business and so many ways he wanted to support people. But I mean, he just absolutely couldn't do it. Um, so we have to create, again, that stability and that real training and support for managers to manage people and not just do the work. So Jim Sinegal at Costco, he says, you know, if he comes back in 20, 30 years and he wants to check out the health of Costco, he's going to look for the general managers of, of their um, clubs and see how, how good are they? How long have they been with us? Um, what's their orientation? He wants his managers, you know, teaching people. He doesn't use, like to use training, teaching people 90% of the time. Um, and that's what helps people understand how to identify problems. That's what helps them, you know, think about implementation solutions. That's what gets ideas through is as having great um, managers at the store business unit level. And that can be really hard when you're unstable. That sounds fantastic. I think that, um, it does. <laughs> I would propose um, that I just give you guys a chance to kind of summarize anything you feel is important, say it to each other. Uh, uh, I think it's just a lot of good stuff. Josh, you start. We'll give Sarah the final word. I know we, we spend a lot of this conversation, I think both of us, um, reflecting on like the sad state of affairs. <laughs> um, and, and, and I don't know, have we, have we done an effective job sort of uh, painting a kind of positive picture of, you know, what the future could look like or how this opportunity could be seized this opportunity being, um, you know, restaurants are going to start to reopen and hire folks. Um, love them or hate them, companies like Amazon and others are making commitments to pay to pay better than they have historically, right? I mean, Amazon's commitment to pay the $15 an hour to everybody um, is a positive development uh, and 
even the, the number of people that they're employing who otherwise wouldn't be employed. Um, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a positive aspect to that. Uh, I know there's a lot of um, concerns and, and even feelings by frontline workers who work inside those fulfillment centers at Amazon that need to be addressed, right? I mean, that, that company's having a very a pretty public conversation uh, with many of those folks. There's plenty of observers and commentators uh, defending both the company and the workers and, you know, hoping for things to improve. But, but there's also, yeah, I think, positive aspects to, to what's developing in a company like that, you know, sort of a symbolic company of this new economy with higher pay, with this recent commitment statement by Jeff Bezos and his annual shareholders letter to make Amazon into the best place to work uh, on earth, he said, earth's best employer. Um, I mean, things like that, I guess, are, they're, they're kind of encouraging to me that there's a, there, there seems to be a growing realization that pay needs to improve, that jobs need to be better, that operating conditions need to be, you know, more effective. And like, that's really encouraging for whatever the, you know, whatever, whatever is motivating people like Jeff Bezos or, you know, companies that are in industries like retail, employing quote unquote essential workers, whatever it is, it's motivating them to make make some of these commitments. You know, we're gonna pay people better. We're going to improve working conditions, whatever it is. Um, I'm thrilled that that's, that that's happening and thinking about how we're gonna, you know, emerge from this last year and the pandemic and everything. I mean, I'm just really hopeful um, bordering on optimistic that the jobs that, you know, as they come back uh, in, in industries like restaurants, uh, as these businesses start to experience healthier, you know, conditions, um, more sales, more customers, more traffic, uh, that, that that will result in positive outcomes, positive developments uh, for the frontline folks that, you know, Sarah, you and I have had experiences with historically has often been pretty bad, you know, um, and the fact that it seems as if businesses, whether or not, you know, governments are uh, keeping up or whatever, but that businesses are, are coming to these realizations, making these decisions, making these commitments to do better by their people. Uh, I, I just couldn't be more excited about that. And I think for both of our organizations, Good Jobs Institute representing the Good Job Strategy, LEI representing lean thinking and, and lean management, lean production, all these things. I think it's really like an, an exciting time for us to get in the game, engage in those conversations, uh, share these stories. Um, we've had these amazing experiences that, you know, the, the shared experience at the deli, the experience I had at Starbucks and working with other retailers. Uh, in other industries that employ quote unquote essential workers. Uh, I just think it's, you know, it, it's really up to us um, to engage as much as we can, to be as influential as possible and to say, hey, what you guys are committing to do, um, 
we've had some experiences and we have some ideas that could be helpful, that could, you know, make those commitments to pay your folks more, not just costly and detrimental to the bottom line, but that in fact, if the operations are improved, if the work is improved, if folks are taught how and engaged and expected to continuously improve, to solve problems day in and day out, that you can pay them better. You can pay them more than $15 an hour and afford to do that, actually improve your bottom line by rooting out all this wasteful shit that's been in your operation for a really long time and that you're spending money on, you know, um, unknowingly maybe that, that, that some of that uh, money is just wasteful, is going towards uh, having folks do things that they don't need to do, uh, prep more ingredients than are necessary, uh, having folks do things in just an ineffective way, uh, unable to serve their customers because the truck's late, because, you know, machines are breaking down. I mean, all this stuff. Um, if we can get that kind of improvement happening, uh, we've just had experiences that, that I'd say validate uh, that there's tremendous cost savings through less wasteful work, and that the opportunity then to pass that savings on uh, to those frontline workers to make the commitments, to exceed the commitments that companies like Amazon with $15 an hour um, living wages are making, um, I just think that opportunity is, is, is out there. Um, I hope that, you know, I'm encouraged by the businesses that are pursuing it uh, and I'm reflecting deeply myself and I know you are too, Sarah, on, you know, what are the experiences that we've had? What can we contribute to these developments and kind of how do we get in the game uh, in a way that we can be helpful and influential and actually help these commitments and, and help these promising ideas be realized so that real people doing real work with real lives and real family benefit from, from rooting out waste, from good jobs, good companies offering good jobs uh, with good work. Um, we, we have a list of companies who've committed to $15 or more per hour for their workers on our website. It is growing, which is super positive. And frankly, there's a lot of companies who aren't going to have a choice. So we all know the minimum wage in the U.S. right now is $7.25. 21 states have that as their minimum wage. 29 have higher minimum wages. Seven plus D.C. have committed to get to $15 over the course of the next five years, including, you know, California and Massachusetts, who might be your usual suspects, but also Florida. They just voted to increase their minimum wage. Right. We have a new administration. It is very clear that they are looking to raise a minimum wage. $15 did not fit into the COVID relief bill, but um, Senators Romney and Cinema are looking at a proposal for an $11 minimum wage. Wages are going up and they need to go up. So before COVID, it was a super tight labor market. Companies were having a hard time hiring people. As we are hopefully emerging from COVID, companies that pay low wages are, guess what? They're having a hard time hiring people. I think many of them are blaming it on, on high um, unemployment insurance uh, rates. That's not what I meant. On a lot of them blame a more generous unemployment system right now. But hey, if you can't pay people enough and offer good jobs, you're not going to get the right talent. And so I think this is just a tremendous time for companies to say, how are we going to treat our workers? How are we going to help 
encourage them and support them to drive fantastic customer service and to drive profitability and to drive innovation and adaptability as we come out of the most staggering thing that's happened in my lifetime and I think many people's lifetimes. We have got to be there for the people who have been there for all of us over the past year. We have got to raise wages, have more stable schedules, and again, get to real respect for people, for their time, for their knowledge, and for what they can bring to the world. Um, so that's, that's my soapbox, but uh, there's so much in lean and good job strategy that can drive, again, both productivity and dignity. And so just really thrilled to be able to work with all of you on that really tremendous mission. We're both passionate about this uh, and excited for uh, you know what the future holds. And, and we see some promising signs of uh, positive development uh, as we look ahead and, and start to come out of this, come out of this pandemic, uh, which has been so awful for so many folks, especially a lot of the folks that we've been talking about here today. So uh, anyway, uh, we're going to be passionate, I think. Uh, I'm going to ignore this advice uh, and uh, see if we can't um, gin up our passion to have a, uh, to have a real impact. Thanks so much to Josh and to Sarah for this great conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please let others know. Thanks also to John Cotter and Pat Pancheck for their help with this work. And above all, thank you for listening to WLAI.